Hi everyone, my name's Mark, I'm one of the ministers here, and today we're continuing our sermon series in the New Testament book of James, which if you've been with us these past few weeks will know it is punchy, it is hard-hitting, James really goes for the spiritual jugular and basically says, oh yeah, I hear you profess faith in Jesus Christ, but I want to see it in your life in action. Chapter 1. You say you believe God's word to be true, then why is it you do not put it into practice and do what it says? Chapter 2. Rich and poor, you say you believe God is for all people, but then why is it you show favouritism to the rich, discriminate against the poor? Chapter 3. You say you believe words matter to God, but then why are your tongues so out of control? And as we come now to the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, there is no let up from James, as he is really keen to continue to expose any disconnect between faith and action. Just listen to him in our passage in verse 17 today. If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do, but doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And so here is another challenging message for us. And in an area where I know for many of us, we are quite sensitive about the area of finances and our attitude to wealth. According to research done just in June by the Money and Pension Scheme here in the UK, nine in 10 people find it difficult to talk about their money and their finances. Simone Ganesson, founder of Wise Monkey, the financial coaching website, says this, Money is a difficult subject for many people to broach because there's so much shame and secrecy and deep-rooted beliefs that people hold around it. We don't tend to challenge these and society doesn't help us to either. Well, look, the Bible is here precisely to help us with these things and James will certainly challenge certain deep-rooted beliefs today. And if we can be open to what he has to say and be humble before God and his word, we will see transformation in this area and a positive impact in our lives. So let's take a look at the passage now. James gives us two warnings, one about future planning in verses 13 to 17 of chapter 4, and then one about financial wealth in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 5. So first of all, a warning about our futures. And let me read from verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. In the first century period that James is writing into, there was a growing commercial activity where merchants and business people would be traveling across the entire Mediterranean area and pursuing, making money, um, financial gain. Not that there's anything wrong with making money per se, it is the love of money which the Bible warns very strongly against, not making money and making a profit as an activity. No, the problem that James is addressing here is the self-confidence that these people have in their own ability to determine the future, um, to go to this city or, or that city on this day or that day for this length of time, uh, to do business and to certainly make money for ourselves. 
And James is like, don't be so arrogant. You don't even know what tomorrow holds. I don't know if you saw the Michael McIntyre sketch that came out recently during lockdown. Uh, the sketch takes place, fictionally, a year ago, June 2019, as Michael McIntyre goes to visit a fortune teller. Uh, and in the sketch, the fortune teller says, oh, you want me to tell you your future? And Michael McIntyre, yeah, yeah, obviously, okay. And and and, uh, and he looks into his crystal ball and goes, ah, yeah, I, I see you're a comedian. And Michael McIntyre's like, well, obviously I'm a comedian. I'm rather quite famous. He goes, no, 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 next year, no more are you a comedian. You substitute teacher, amateur hairdresser. And Michael McIntyre's like, what? Oh, yeah, I see you going into a shop. A mask on your face, gloves on your hands. And Michael's thinking, oh my goodness, am I, am I, am I a robin? Am I a robin? You will be inside all the time, only let out once a day for exercise. Like, oh my goodness, I'm going to prison. Now, of course, I don't do justice to, to the sketch. Do look it up on YouTube. It is incredibly funny because it makes the point none of us saw this coming. None of, most of us have never even heard the word furlough before lockdown, and yet now millions of us are out of jobs. The economic impact of COVID-19 has been devastating, and that's why James warns us against any boasting in our future plans. You know, I want to get married by this age, and I want to have kids by this age, and I want to live in this city with this number of children, and then retire at this date in this place with this amount of money in the bank account. And James says in verse 16, all such boasting is evil, because you didn't even know what tomorrow holds. Which, by the way, doesn't mean we shouldn't make plans. No, the plans of the heart belong to man, as Proverbs 16 puts it. But the answer of the tongue comes from the Lord. And so there's a wonderful balance to scripture where it encourages us to make plans, to be diligent. And actually part of wise stewardship may well be that we take out life insurance, um, save money for retirement. But as we make these plans, we need to do so in absolute dependence on God, recognising that he is the one who is in ultimate control of our futures. <clears throat> this then is the attitude that James is condemning here, the one which leaves God completely out of the picture. And the person who makes plans for their lives without considering God and what his will is for their lives. Now, for some of us, we may say we profess and believe in God's sovereignty and his control over our lives. But then in reality, we're not always committing our plans to him. We don't seek his face. We're not like discerning his will. And there might be a superficial, now, Lord, you know, bless my plans, make them go well. But really, we are still acting as though we are in ultimate control of our futures. And James says, don't be so arrogant. On the other hand, some of us may be very quick to, to trust the Lord. Um, do your thing, Lord, and I will follow wherever you ask. But actually, we're doing that with no careful planning from our point of view, no wise stewardship, no due diligence in our actions. And that too is wrong. We need to plan and pray. We need to depend on God and do 
the due diligence. But where we struggle with the former, where we struggle to bring God into our plans, we'll just look at the illustration that James gives to us in verse 14. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, how humbling is that to view yourself, to view your life like that? Like the steam that appears you know, from a coffee cup, your breath on a cold day, the mist in the morning that is just here for a moment and then gone, vanishes. That, James, is what our lives are like. I'm not sure if you saw the video this week of the horrific blast in Beirut and that mushroom cloud and the devastation it caused, leaving hundreds dead and thousands injured. And we must pray for the people and the families uh, there. But just think of all those people who went to work in the morning, you had plans for their day and, you know, and that year, what they hoped to do, what they hoped to achieve, and, and all of it snatched away from them suddenly, their lives cut short just like that. And James wants to remind us that we are like mist. Here today, gone tomorrow, it could be an illness tomorrow. It could be being knocked off a bicycle by a bus to work. It could even be the return of Jesus Christ. Who knows what tomorrow holds? Only God does. And so it is vital that any plans we make for the future include him. We do it with him in mind, the one who is in ultimate control of our lives and in control for our best. Some of you may remember our plans to plant a church in NW1 and we planned for it, we prayed about it, we raised money for it, we even hired someone to lead it. And then right at the last minute, the rug was pulled out from under our feet and the plant could no longer uh, happen. And we were left thinking like, what was that all about? And then two months later, what happened? We get a phone call from Andrew Braun at the previous minister at St. James Clerkenwell saying that he is going to retire and he wonders whether it's the Lord's will that inspire the original church and St. James come together as one church and that should be the future there and we all know how that uh, turned out and we came to realize that God had other plans for us better plans for us plans that we had even begun to realize and so James warns us here do not make any plans without God without dependence on him without holding lightly to your own plans because God may have better plans for you Instead, verse 15, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Which doesn't mean we literally have to say these exact words whenever we plan to do something. Although for some people, you know, they do preface what they say with God willing, Lord willing, and that can be a really helpful thing to do to keep God in the picture. But what it does mean is that whenever we make plans, we need to bring God into them and not leave him out and remind ourselves that we are like mist, that we don't know what tomorrow holds, that only God does. And so humble ourselves before God, his sovereignty, and joyfully commit our plans to him and look to the future very much with him 
in mind because he ultimately knows best for us. Well, if that's the first warning from this passage, the second warning comes in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, a warning about our finances. Let me read from verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. One of the tricky questions about these verses is who exactly is James addressing here? Clearly he is addressing rich people, but is this rich people inside the church, given he's writing to the church? Or is this rich people outside the church, like those that were mentioned back in chapter 2, who were exploiting the church, dragging them to court, blaspheming God's name? Out of the four commentaries I looked at, three of them went with rich people outside the church. And I'll be interested to hear your thoughts afterwards. My own view is to go also with rich people outside the church for two main reasons. First of all, because James drops the brothers and sisters language that he's been using throughout this letter and is quick to pick up on again in verses 7, 9, 10 and 12 in chapter 5. But in this section, we don't get it. The second reason why I think this is rich people outside the church is because of the change in tone. It shifts quite dramatically from a sort of dialogical style in verses 13 to 17 with an exhortation to change. But here in verses 1 to 6, all we get is this um, final pronouncement of judgment. Now, if this is the case that James is addressing here, rich people outside the church, we should not think that we are now let off the hook if we are followers of Jesus Christ. Because the very reason that James is writing these verses is to show us where a worldly attitude to wealth leads. And so for us to root out any similar worldly attitude to wealth that is still there in our own hearts. So, four reasons we are given here why God's judgment is coming on the worldly rich. First, because they have hoarded wealth. Verse 3, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Instead of these people seeing themselves as missed, here today, gone tomorrow, and so stewards of God's money, that money to be used for God's kingdom purposes, they are instead hoarding wealth for their own selfish purposes. But one day they will have to give account to God for the way they have used his money. James says the corrosion of your gold and silver will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Which if, if you've ever burnt yourself with a match or you've got sunburnt and you know just how painful that is. Well, this is a really sobering picture of how horrific judgment will be. So you can see how seriously God takes this hoarding of wealth. Can I ask, are you a hoarder? And are you a, a Scrooge? Do you tend to think to yourself, well, it's my money, so I can do with it as I please? 
And James says, look, be careful, because that is a worldly attitude to wealth. And just look at the judgment that's going to come upon those who let that worldly attitude see where it leads. Don't be selfish with the money God gives you. You are stewards of it. Instead, use it for his kingdom purposes. The second reason why judgment is coming on the worldly rich is because they cheat other people out of money. Verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Think of the boohoo scandal that broke a couple of weeks ago um, in Leicester, where it's alleged that they were paying their garment workers only £3.50 an hour and asking them to work and not taking into account the important social distancing measures with COVID. Now, perhaps we're not in the position of um, paying wages to workers, but we are all in the position of being responsible for the clothes we wear and the money we spend. And I wonder, do do you ever think about where your money is going? Um, What unjust practices you may be inadvertently supporting with the brands you choose to wear? The third reason judgment is coming on the worldly rich is because of their luxurious and self-indulgent lifestyles. Verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Now, it's easy to point the finger at the celebrity rich and famous, but by global standards, we are all relatively rich in the West, and we can be just as tempted by luxury and self-indulgence. I remember um, a marriage preparation course at All Souls. There was a discussion taking place about finances, how to plan your money, use your money, spend it. And one of the the guys there, an American Christian from the Bible Belt, um, explained how he does this budget. Uh, Every month prepares a budget with, with all his outgoings on. And he has four friends who regularly scrutinize his budget. And if this individual ever wants to make a purchase of something, if it was beyond a certain level, I think it was £250, then he has to clear it by all four of his friends. And when I heard this for the first time, I couldn't think of anything worse. I thought this is so over the top. This is like a cult. And yet reflecting upon it now, given the teaching of this passage, given the wider teaching of the Bible, between the two extremes of um, take a look at everything and don't you dare look at my finances, which of those two do you think is closer to godly scrutiny and which one is closer to what James is warning against here? Are you open about your money? Do you have a confidant, someone you trust, who can speak into this area of your life, who can provide some godly scrutiny to your finances for your spiritual well-being. The fourth reason for judgment coming upon the worldly rich is the way they abuse the poor and innocent. Verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not 
opposing you. I don't know if you've been following the Jeffrey Epstein case, um, and though now involving Jelaine Maxwell and a whole host of other celebrities, politicians and prominent individuals, and it's just sickening um, what many of them were able to get away with for uh, so long, simply because of the power and the influence that these rich people uh, had, and, and, and over others, and the way they took advantage of the poor and vulnerable and committed terrible evils against them and silenced them for such a long time. But James is absolutely clear about what is coming upon rich people that treat others like this. Verse 1. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. In other words, if there is one thing that you and I can certainly plan for in the future, it is God's judgment day. When all the wrongs of this world will be put right, including all financial wrongs. But at this point, let me remind you of the good news of the gospel, that we have a saviour that we have an innocent one who was condemned and murdered in our place. One who was infinitely rich and for our sakes became poor. Jesus Christ on the cross died, bore God's judgment for all our sin, all our self-indulgence, all our cheating of others for financial gain, all the times we've hoarded our wealth. And he did this so that we may be forgiven by his father and transformed by his spirit to use our money more and more for his kingdom purposes and less for our own selfish ends. But that can only happen as we bring God back into the picture, back into the picture of our plans and our finances, as we truly recognise his sovereignty over all things, and as we recognise the reality of judgment day. And so let's humble ourselves before him and trust in his good purposes for us. Well, let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you are sovereign over every aspect of our lives, our futures, our finances. Sorry when we forget that. Thank you, forgiveness for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us to bring you back into our plans, to bring you back into our finances. Please would you do that work in us, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.